This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, February the 17th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Michelle McQuig and Joyda Gupta join in for the weekly news panel. Three topics on deck today, the geopolitical and diplomatic implications of the downing of flying objects over North America. The benefits and draw. What do you do about government agencies deleting social media posts? Impact on transparency? Or no big deal in the news panel. But the show begins with a dose of news as well. It's the top story of the day. This one kind of snuck up on me. The final report from the Emergencies Act inquiry will be released today. Stephanie Taylor looks ahead. Justice Paul Rouleau will address whether the government's emergency declaration was justified and make recommendations likely to spark lively debate about how to update the legislation. His report draws in around 300 hours of testimony in some 9,000 documents. More than 100 witnesses testified, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, key members of his cabinet and other police leaders. The report itself is expected to be made public around noon. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Well, now I know what I'm reading on my train ride to Montreal. Just a little bit of light inquiry commission reporting. That's going to be exciting. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has announced a slate of new supports for Haiti. Canada will send Royal Navy vessels to offer assistance on the coast. But Trudeau says putting troops on the ground is not the solution. Canada is elbows deep in terms of trying to help. But we know from difficult experience that the best thing we can do to help is enable the Haitian leadership and the Haitian people themselves to be driving uh, their pathway out of this crisis. Trudeau describes the kind of role the Navy will play. We have seen in the past that the presence of uh, a Coast Guard ships or uh, ships there uh, from allies uh, significantly uh, dissuaded the gangs from using uh, the waterways as an extra sphere of influence for them. Uh, they will be there uh, to support the Haitian National Police. Canada will also offer $10 million in financial supports for migrants and $12 million in funding for humanitarian assistance. Coming back to the halls of Parliament, Justice Minister David Lametti has introduced legislation to make it easier and faster for people who may have been wrongfully convicted to have their cases reviewed. The law would establish an independent commission to look at criminal cases where people may have been wrongfully accused. Lametti discussed the timeline for getting the legislation through Parliament. Certainly as a minister, I'm going to try to get this through as fast as I can through the parliamentary process. I think I've got good support in the House and in the Senate. Um, and then we'll move as quickly as possible to get this thing up and running. Lametti wants equity to be at the heart of these reforms. When I look at the files that come to me, I see a clear pattern. The applicants are overwhelmingly white men. And our prison populations do not look like that. This tells me that the system is not as accessible to women or to indigenous peoples or black or racialized people who are disproportionately represented in our criminal justice system. 
We have to change that. The bill is named after David and Joyce Milgard. Looking south of the border, this one may impact you if you're headed off to the U.S. and A on this long weekend for most of the country. Terminal 1 at New York's JFK International Airport will remain closed today after a fire blew out power to the entire building. ABC's Janice Yu reports dozens of flights have been rescheduled or cancelled. Some flights heading to JFK even turned around and went back to their original destinations upon learning about the issues here at Terminal 1. Others were diverted to nearby airports like Newark or Boston, and some, a lucky few, were able to arrive at other terminals here at JFK. Switching gears to something a little more entertainment related, but still adequately snarky to keep you going on a Friday morning. Rolling Stone has released a list of the worst albums by some of the best musicians. Jason Nathanson basks in the negativity. Going by the premise that even geniuses mess up, Rolling Stone out with the list of 50 genuinely horrible albums by brilliant artists. The Who's 1986 album It's Hard gets the 50 spot, blaming the suckiness on exhaustion and hard drugs. Drugs get the blame for a few of these misfires, including Elton John's 1986 disc Leather Jackets at number 13. Then there are the worst three. In third, Rolling Stone says that even Yes calls the 1991 album Union dreadful. In second, 1973's Squeeze by the Velvet Underground included no actual founding members. And the worst, Today I thought about killing you. Kanye West's 2018 flop Yay, which Rolling Stone says marks the beginning of the most disastrous artistic and personal collapse in the history of popular music. Jason Athens and ABC News, Hollywood. And I'm sure that list will come with no controversy whatsoever. Let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. On Thursday, you were asked if you were a politician, which of these jobs would you most want? 10% of you said Premier, 10% of you said Prime Minister, 20% of you said Mayor, and 60% of you said, leave me out of it, none of the above. I don't want any of this power. I don't want to change the world. I just want to complain about it. Fair enough. Good on you. Today's Daily Poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. This will be explored a little bit in the news panel in segment four with Michelle and Joita. But I'm curious, do you ever delete posts you make on social media? Yes or no? On, on Facebook, I won't delete something, but thankfully they brought in that edit feature a couple years ago. That makes it a little bit easier to not delete something. On Twitter, if I notice that I've made a typo almost instantly after I've posted, I will delete and repost. But uh, but generally speaking, if I've, that post has been out there for a couple hours and there's a typo, I don't really care. And more broadly, I have never, ever, that's not totally true, I have never in the last 13 years deleted a social media post, but I will say things on my Facebook got a little bit scrubbed up when I got into the broadcasting industry. Let's just say uh, early 20s Dave uh, may have been a little more comfortable posting things on social media than uh, late 30s Dave. And it was nothing necessarily uh, horrible in terms of language. It was just a... A couple pictures where my eyes were not red because of albinism, but uh, red because of other things, and the evidence may have been uh, quite evident in my hand. Alex Smythe, what about you? Have you ever deleted a post you make on social media? Well, first off, Dave, I, I love the, the confidence in which you started saying, I ne have never, ever deleted. Wait, nope, scratch that. <laughs> I have deleted. Ignore me. Um, 
I, I would say I'm similar to you. Like when it comes to actually posting anything, like, you know, any thoughts or stuff, I really don't post much. I, I think that's pretty evident if you scroll through my social media, especially in the last while, just because, you know, I, I don't fully trust social media companies anymore. I, I've also been very careful throughout my time with social media that I've always like thought about and, and premeditated what I'm going to post and basically ensures like, how is this going to be viewed, construed? So I've always taken a very conservative approach to those types of things. So when it comes to thoughts or, or anything like that, I haven't deleted any of that. I may have edited it like right away if there was some sort of spelling mistake or, or something like that, but it's basically resending the same thing, just making the grammar correct. Uh, in terms of like photos and stuff, maybe a couple I've I've taken off for similar reasons, you know, like early 20s or, or you know, late teens where everything's legal. But, you know, it's just if you really want those those types of photos up there forever. Who knows? Yeah, you know? I, I've also untagged myself in a couple things. I don't know if yeah. that counts as deleting, but uh, <laughs> one of my friends nope. uh, took a video uh, at a birthday party once where uh, I was I was having a fairly intense conversation that was captured on that video, and I uh, I just uh, detagged myself from that one. So uh, for people who who knew I was there, they heard the conversation. It was fine, but uh, randos were were not to be uh, introduced to that conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, and you know that happened. I I think there is also this this brings into a bit of that broader question of it's like you know we've seen this time and time again of how you know media posts from the the past kind of get resurfaced that uh, people have to face a, a criticism scrutiny you know sometimes decades later after they they posted something said something sent a photo even after you you may have like you know addressed it in the past it still resurfaces i think that that becomes a ongoing problem that you know where we as a society continue to face and we have to look it's like well they're there's different contexts, different times. Like there is certainly accountability that should be held for certain things, but it's also too, there has to be an understanding. It's like, well, times are different. You know, the views have changed. You, you are allowed to grow and change as a person Ir at the same time. Irrespective, I stand by anything that I've ever posted on social media. Yeah. I just, uh, just you know, there's a, couple, there's a couple things where maybe some stuff was posted without my knowledge that I wasn't super mm -hmm. cool with, which is a different ethical conversation in and of itself. <laughs> Alex, thank you for this. At Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. Feedback at AMI.ca is where you email and 1-866-509-4545 is where you make phone calls 1-866-509-4545 feedback at ami.ca that email address one more time for you alex is standing by with the national weather update Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting off in St. John's, Newfoundland. It's a mix of sun and clouds, with clouds increasing as the day goes on. There's also wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour. The high is three, and there is a freezing rain warning in effect for tonight. To Halifax, Nova Scotia, there's rain starting this morning with up to 10 millimeters set to fall. The high is six degrees, and there is also a freezing rain warning in effect for the area as well. Over to Montreal, Quebec, there's snow mixed in with ice this morning, and then it'll be cloudy in the afternoon. There's up to five centimeters of snow and ice falling. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is minus three, feeling like minus 14 with that wind chill. 
Ottawa, Ontario. There's snow and ice pellets this morning, and then it will be a mix of sun and clouds as the day goes on. There's up to five centimeters falling. The high is minus seven, and it's feeling like minus 14 with the wind chill. Here in Toronto, Ontario, there's light snow and possible freezing rain this morning, but then it's turning to cloudiness in the afternoon. The high is minus five, feeling like minus 12. The Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's sunny, then becoming a bit of a mix of sun and clouds with possible snow. The high is minus five, but with that wind chill, it feels like minus 31. So Thunder Bay is now getting some of that cold weather that we were seeing out in the prairies earlier this week. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's cloudy with possible snow this afternoon. There's wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is minus one, but with that wind chill, it feels like minus 27. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it is mainly cloudy with a chance of snow this morning. The high is minus four and feeling like minus 12 with the wind chill. The Calgary, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds today. The high is one degree and feeling a bit cooler at minus nine with the wind chill there. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds as well, but there is possible snow this morning. The high is also one degree and feeling a bit warmer at minus seven. Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, mainly sunny but bitterly cold the high is minus 31 and with that wind chill it's more like minus 43 so there is an extreme cold warning in effect for the area in vancouver bc it's cloudy with possible rain or wet snow this morning and then it'll be a mix of sun and clouds as the day goes on the high is seven degrees in the area and finally in victoria bc it's a mix of sun and clouds today the high is eight degrees that is your ami national weather report from environment canada alex looking back at some facebook posts between september 2008 and the spring of 2009 i posted about the montreal canadians 57 times uh between those dates so i stand by all those posts for sure uh, alex we'll talk to you later in the show coming up <laughs> next good. the news panel kicks off with a conversation about some of the implications of the flying objects that were shot down over north america over the last couple of weeks this is the now news panel this is the now with dave brown which will turn into the now news panel Panel on AMI TV. back it's now with dave brown on ami tv it's friday that means the weekly news panel gets assembled and that means you welcome into the show the panelists joita gupta and michelle mcquig hey good morning joita dave and hello michelle hello everybody all right gang we're all together here there's plenty of chatter following the downing of several flying objects across north america last weekend and there's still plenty of chatter from the downing of a chinese spy balloon two weekends ago the stories have raised questions on the sovereignty of airspace it's also raised questions about aliens but that's a different story. Ultimately, the story is about diplomacy, spying, and air defense, specifically between the U.S. and China. Juita, what do you want to explore in this conversation? Yes, I think um, setting aside the more fantastical elements of the story, it does uh, cause a couple of eyebrows to go up when you start to hear about balloons being shot from the sky um, and what that means for 
uh, surveillance and spying and sovereignty over airspace. And ultimately, if anyone's even followed the news uh, fractionally, you don't have to be deeply embedded in the news, but even if you just glance at the local paper or listen to the, the headlines in a, in a radio broadcast, you know that for a very long time now, I think it's fair to say the foreign relations between uh, the United States and China have been extremely fraught. And these um, these balloons uh, flying into American North American airspace and the fact that they get sh shot down takes place, I think, within this larger context. And I think it's really this yeah. larger context that is the more compelling aspect of the story. Um, but of course, the fact that they are, they're using balloons ostensibly to spy or for a myriad of, of other innocent reasons, that's part and parcel of the conversation as well. Michelle, you were on the show on Monday. You were one of the first voices on the show on Monday. You and I talked about the speedy decision by NORAD to shoot down several of these flying objects last weekend. What did the speed with which NORAD and the corresponding governments in Canada and the U.S. had behind NORAD, uh, what does it say to you about the quick decision to shoot these uh, projectiles or objects down? Yeah, well, I, I personally think there's a couple of components there, but the bulk of it uh, is what I, I believe what Joita laid out, and that it's it's the context of the deteriorating relationship with China, and that's not unique to the United States. That's been a fact in Canada as well. Uh, those of you who remember there who followed the, the two Michaels saga in any way at all will know that that was just one, uh, although a major flashpoint between Canadian and Chinese relations at the moment. Um, so I think that definitely is a big part of what accounted for the speed is the fact that China is viewed with a lot of suspicion on the international stage right now. Uh, even the fact that they have yet to condemn Russia in any way uh, fuels some of those hostilities and, and suspicions, I think. Uh, but the other aspect I suspect is is a bit political in that the first time the, uh, the balloon was spotted, and this is the only one that has officially been confirmed to be Chinese, I think we should make that pretty clear that the other three have not yet been confirmed as Chinese. Um, but the first one that came down, Joe Biden, President of the United States, took a fair bit of flack for not shooting it down more quickly. Uh, we've had lots of rationale as to why that is, but the fact is that it did become a bit of a political issue, and I suspect that might have fueled some subsequent decision-making. Yeah, I'm inclined to lean towards number two, the tolerance side of things, that there was only going to be so much tolerance about what was going to be in North American airspace after quite a bit of political flack. And to be frank, maybe uh, a conversation that was blown out of proportion about the first balloon but to just get ahead of that politicians like Trudeau and Biden said it's an easy enough win to shoot these things down and that's that whether we know precisely what they are or what we're doing that's a different question but it was probably just more of a tolerance issue in regards to what's allowed in airspace it's super possible these are just drones or some like random stuff that, that are getting shot down that could be easily uh, flown by some kid domestically remotely somewhere else around North America but again it's all that's all speculation at this point but I would just say it's it's probably a matter of like tolerance. It, it's an easy political win to shoot this stuff down and say, oh, look at me, I'm strong. I'm shooting down anything that comes into our airspace. Uh, Joita, what do you make of NORAD's quick decision and quick decision making by policymakers last week? Yeah, I think the, the very first balloon uh, was a Chinese balloon and apparently was also uh, intended for surveillance purposes, but it had mm -hmm. uh, apparently blown off course, or that's what the Chinese government is saying, and had never been intended to uh, be in American airspace. But I think I agree with you, Dave, that 
there's a little bit more at a foot here than simply protecting the sovereignty of American airspace. Because if you stop and take a, a look at this a whole surveillance situation with the caveat that espionage is not my forte, um, there are spy satellites that are orbiting the planet mm -hmm. that are incredibly difficult to shoot down and are by far, far more accurate than what you would gather from a balloon. And yet nobody is raising a ruckus about these spy satellites that are hovering around gathering data. I am told that they're so accurate that they can, um, if you open a, you know, if you're if you're sifting through through uh, coins or bills in your wallet, they can pick up the denomination. That's how accurate these spy satellites satellites wow. are supposed to be. But you no one's really getting worked up about them. And then when you look at some of the subsequent balloons that were shot down, well, some of them could have been weather balloons, some of them could have been hobby balloons, some of them could have been drones, as you pointed out. And yet, because governments want to look as though they're doing something and they want a political win, or at the very least, they don't want to be called out for not doing anything when they should have or could have, you see NORAD acting very quickly to shoot things down uh, largely because A, they didn't want to look like they weren't doing anything, and B, they were now suspicious and on the lookout for additional spy balloons. Yeah. Uh, Joita, if you'll allow me, I would quibble a little bit with people not talking about some of the spy satellites going on. Like maybe in the top line headline way the news is reported, people aren't talking about spy satellites, but any podcast that I listened to that even touched upon this subject went pretty deep into the conversation around satellites. Like I said, espionage is not my forte. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, fair. Okay, fair. Quibble away. Yeah, but, but no, but but I, but I will agree with you that in terms of like the top line way, if somebody read one paragraph of the story and moved on, yeah, they didn't get mm -hmm. into, into spy satellites. But but I would I would suggest that that conversation actually has been quite robust in terms of analysis. But you have to go find analysis. It's like any it's like mm -hmm. any kind of news story. You have to go find analysis. You're not necessarily going to find it in a generalized copy. Uh, Michelle, both you and Joita identified. The how this could end up being an inflection point for China-U.S. relations. How does this factor into the increasingly tense relationship between China and the U.S.? I, I hesitate to speculate as to how it will ultimately play out, but I definitely don't see this as doing it any favors. Uh, we've already seen reports about the Chinese government apparently refusing to take a call from the United States uh, Defense Secretary. Yeah, Anthony, Blink um, Anthony Blinken canceled his planned visit. To, exactly, to China. that was another one. Yeah, this was all it, all related to these balloon incidents. Um, so this is like just a, a, a taste, I think, of how uh, how at odds the two sides are at the moment. Canada also has a pretty contentious relationship with China at the moment. Perhaps not quite to the same degree, but. Now Canada's involvement is, is pretty well established, and, and one of these unidentified balloons was shot down over Canadian airspace. So we're unavoidably a part of that conversation now as well, and I, 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 I you know, <laughs> I, I can't say that it's beyond repair. I, this is not my wheelhouse. I, I don't, there are many people who are much better equipped to comment on that kind of thing than me, but I certainly don't think this is going to help in any way. It, it did appear certainly late last week that a lot of Chinese officials were actually quite apologetic about the balloon incident. They they, they knew there was egg on their face. It, it didn't strike me necessarily as the typical um brinksmanship or shows of strength that typically you might see from politicians they, yeah. they, they there was definitely an acknowledgement that they messed up and there's mm -hmm. a consensus out there that that people made bad decisions and didn't quite understand how certain actions would be interpreted i i don't know if that's an overly generous stance to take but there is a school of thought out there that suggests that a lot of 
the issues here have just been compounded by bad communication. Yeah, that which 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 is is one of the things that tends to happen here when you have a little bit of a fractured relationship. That sometimes mm -hmm. the communication is not as strong as you'd want it to be. Joita, as you consider the the way in which this may impact the relationship that's becoming increasingly tense between China and the U.S., what do you what comes to mind for you? Yes, I think Michelle hit the nail on the head there when she said that there's been absolutely atrocious communication. And I think that is the problem here, the, the lack of communication and the suspicion on both sides. You had, um, it's becoming increasingly clear that as far as the U.S. and China and their foreign relations are concerned, they just cannot, with any degree of credibility, assess the other's intentions. You had the, the U.S., becoming extremely suspicious the moment the first balloon uh, blew mm -hmm. off course. And of course, then you had China that said nothing about this balloon and its providence for about three days, which just added to the suspicion and you had fuel on the fire. I think the Chinese government did end up with a bit of egg on their face. I think they did not understand or anticipate that this would become as big an issue as it did. And it would have such a, a broad ranging political implications that would get as much coverage in the media. Uh, and yet, I think it really speaks to this larger context of um, economic rivalries between the US and China, but also political differences between the two uh, that have in this moment crystallized in a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, because I think for people living in North America, there were, I, I suspect, moments of what is going on here? Are we being spied on? What is happening? And the whole thing could have been avoided if there had been better communication, which I think we can all hopefully agree wasn't the case here. All right, guys, let's wrap up on a little bit of a lighter note. Joita, was it aliens these last three last weekend? Was it aliens? Did aliens send stuff? <laughs> uh, it, it, no, it, it certainly wasn't alien. Uh, but if I'd known that we were going to wrap up on a lighter note, I would have just said one last thing. So I hope you'll indulge me, Dave Please. and Michelle, uh, which is that we should, for context, keep in mind uh, the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis um, and the fact that even uh, during the Cold War, in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the, it, it led to the establishment of a hotline whereby there was a direct line of communication between the the US and the Soviet Union to try and avoid another situation like the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you had that hotline or that direct line of communication. And I think what was missing in this instance was that direct line of communication. It was a lot of speculation. It was a lot of back and forth. It was a lot of suspicion. Uh, but there was, and maybe there should be, uh, again, foreign policy not being my wheelhouse either, uh, maybe there should be a direct line of communication where person A in Beijing can call up person B in the U.S. and say, actually, we're not trying to spy on you today. I'm going to watch for a bring back the bat phone hashtag now. <laughs> uh, Michelle, aliens, yay, nay, possibly? Who's to say? Uh, one who wouldn't say when asked about it directly by my Canadian press colleague was Anita Anand. So that was pretty funny on yeah, the weekend. And neither, and neither would Karina Jean-Pierre from, uh, from the Biden administration. Who, anyway. who knows? Anyways, if I, the truth, the, probably not. The, the truth. I'm going on record, probably not. <laughs> yeah, the, but it also, uh, the, the, the consensus now seems to be that it's not related yeah. to the first Chinese balloon either. So yeah. let's all maintain our healthy skepticism. Yeah, probably not, but the truth, <laughs> but the truth is out there. Uh, coming up next, there are there's a, there's not a new, but Vancouver does have a really interesting street cleaning program that goes unofficially off the city's books. There are benefits and drawbacks, so we'll take a closer look. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's the Now News panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta. Let's address the next topic. Vancouver City Council has approved $2.46 million for its street cleaning program this year. But this is a very particular project. This project in particular has been around for almost 25 years. The money is earmarked for six different organizations to do cleanup. And this cleanup is on top of standard city cleaning efforts. It involves daily collection of litter and needles on foot using brooms, shovels and carts. The city says the program created over 71,000 hours of work for individuals with barriers to traditional employment last year. Think people experiencing homelessness generally as those individuals. And as you know, there is a disproportionate representation of people with disabilities, racialized people, indigenous people, etc. within that community. Workers collected 34,000 bags of litter and nearly 110,000 needles. So I want you to think about this topic as an inflection point about what might seem like sound public policy, but also might cause a couple of labor concerns. So as you both think about this, Michelle and Joita, what in your mind is the benefit of a program like this? To my mind, giving job opportunities to people experiencing homelessness or other vulnerable populations that could include people with disabilities, that's a good thing. Doing important public service, keeping streets clean, especially in consideration for things like needles, that's a good thing. Maybe this is a bit abstract, but giving people a connection point to their community is also good. Michelle, when you think about the benefits of a program like this, what comes to mind for you? Uh, I would say the same benefits occur to me, although I do have some concerns too. Around wait, wait, hold the, hold the concerns, hold the concerns, benefits, okay. benefits. Okay. Start with the positivity. I have, well, I, I have lots of concerns. Uh, is, is okay. The spoiler alert the, okay. All right. uh, but in terms of benefits, I would say largely the same as you. I, I, I do think establishing connection to community is valid in cases where it's wanted and it's chosen. Um, when there are such limited opportunities, though, uh, that's an aspect I think we can come back to. But yeah, I think certainly litter removal is a big one. Um, although it, it again, for me, raises like, none of these benefits are without alloy. Okay, say, okay. Because... Then, 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 Michelle, you can just say stop, and I can move on to Joita, <laughs> and we can then okay, give you all the time in the world for concerns. <laughs> Joita, when yeah. you think about benefits, what comes to mind? With the caveat that I have a number of concerns. Yeah, we all as have well. concerns. We all have concerns. <laughs> I'm just messing with you, Dave. Um, I, I think the benefits have been outlined really well. Uh, the first one is that for uh, people in marginalized communities who face barriers to employment, any opportunity, anyone who kind of creaks that door open and gives you a foot in the door, that's always a good thing. You not only get work experience and maybe make a bit of money, that those are always really plus, uh, those are very positive, especially if you're someone who belongs to a a community that has traditionally faced barriers to employment. That's a, a no quibble with that. I think that's really a good thing. Uh, I definitely love your point about having a greater connection with the community. But that also goes both ways. It's not just a way to integrate vulnerable or marginalized communities uh, into the social fabric or the social milieu, but it can also have to change the perception of the homeless community uh, and 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 lead to some of the uh, lead to the uh, you know taking away some of the negative stigma attached with homelessness, for example, if people are seeing contributing in a in a productive way, quote unquote productive way. Above and over that, it sounds like uh, it is a way to supplement uh, the cleaning services already provided by the city, some of the micro-cleaning targets, needle removal and things like that. So again, all in all, a very good idea 
But as with a lot of these public policy things, the devil is in the yes. details. Yes. Okay. That. Thank Joita. Thank you. I really appreciate that. That was well done. Now we can get into the myriad of concerns that we all have. Michelle, you get first word on this. What is okay. your mind on some of the drawbacks to this policy? Fair enough. Um, so I do have questions about with those numbers you were citing about the sheer number of of litter and the amount, the number of needles that have been removed and whatnot, raises questions to me about exactly what's happening on the city side. If clearly there's a need for this much supplementary work to be farmed out to six organizations. I do wonder about this. Uh, street cleans and street sweeps themselves are really problematic. And that's a, a big part of where I'm concerned is that there have been lots of calls from local homelessness groups and whatnot to change that practice or at least adapt it some because a lot of homeless people are having their crucial belongings thrown away as garbage without very indiscriminately. This has been going on for a long time. Apparently, the losses have mounted in recent years, and having those things farmed out additionally uh, does cause me some concern because we're probably having a lot less transparency when it's not being handled by city staff. If it's being farmed out, there's room for all kinds of additional practices to muddy those waters, in, in my estimation. Uh, the other aspect to point out is that, yes, they're offering work to marginalized groups, which is wonderful. Uh, however, I would say that I always have concerns when there are so few opportunities made available for those marginalized groups and some of this work being offered to them is frankly kind of risky and uh, has limited opportunity for additional uh, movement. Mm -hmm. So, so, yeah. so, so just before I give you an opportunity to, uh, to chime in on some of your concerns as well, Michelle mentioned the way in which Perhaps, although this is a work opportunity, what are the workers getting out of this? So based on last year's budget and the amount of hours worked, I calculated that every hour of labor costs about $30 an hour. And I did some digging and I couldn't find a straight answer to this. But I'm feeling very confident that these workers are certainly not getting $30 an hour. And I'm right? fairly confident they're <laughs> not even getting two thirds of that. I'm even wondering if this might fall into some of what we used to see with people with disabilities in these workshop programs, sheltered workshops, sheltered workshops yeah. being paid less than minimum wage. So I do worry about how much of this is administration cost versus going to the people that it's purported to benefit. So that's one of the big concerns that I have, Joita. What about you? Yeah, that was definitely one of the big concerns that I had. I, I, I was trying to do the math as, my, as well, and I realized, okay, it's not really likely that it's 30 bucks an hour. I mean, kudos to them if it is, but I think that's highly unlikely. And so with a lot of these programs, a large portion of the budget goes towards things like uh, administrative costs, operating costs for not-for-profits, and 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 uh, fundraising costs, and all kinds of other things um, that don't necessarily that doesn't actually mean that the budget allocated to the program directly translates into wages for workers. And I'm not entirely sure because you know what we said earlier was 71,000 hours of work was performed. I'm not sure how many people were actually helped and how many people uh, and how much work was actually done. And mm -hmm. I want to pick up on that on and tease that thread about sheltered workshops because I think there is a long history. If you were to ask um, anti-poverty activists and advocates, there's a long history of um, of 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 having welfare programs with strings attached, and mm -hmm. there's been a real sense that if. Uh, a, a number of anti-poverty activists will tell you there's been a real sense that the poor have to show that they are deserving of welfare programs. So I have often wondered if this is one of those scenarios where someone is enrolled in this program, 
And let's say they make $100 or $150 cleaning the sidewalks and sweeping needles. Does that then get claw? Does that then result in a clawback of their social assistance payments? Mm. Uh, is it feeding into this idea of the deserving poor or the poor needing to be incentivized to work because you hold the welfare payment either hostage or you create situations where people have to work uh, in order to supplement welfare payments that are not adequate for to ensure a decent standard of living. I just don't know how this program dovetails with existing social assistance yeah, programs. Yeah. And then you've got, as you said, Dave, very astutely, this entire unpleasant uh, history of sheltered workshops for people with disabilities. Although I will say that um, there was a story out of Ontario where they were closing sheltered workshops uh, some years ago. Michelle might remember the story too. And there, it wasn't a, a unanimous agreement that sheltered workshops <laughs> I were remember. a bad thing. It's one yeah, of the only times that I've ever gotten hate mail for a segment that I did on The Pulse. <laughs> wow. So, I oh mean, my. that was the... That was the, the that's the thing with sheltered workshops too, right? Where it's uh, it's not entirely clear. You have people who are proponents of that kind of thing because they say it provides people with a sense of purpose and a connection to the community, as we said earlier. But then you've got this downside where people are working for pittance, doing work that might be unsafe. With as Michelle pointed out, very little room for advancement yeah. or growth. I mean, what do you do? Where do you go up from there? Yeah, it, yeah. It, um, you guys may think this is a stretch, and forgive me if it is, but the program is clearly successful. It's been around for 25 years, and it keeps getting renewed, and the budget keeps going up, and the hours worked, and the, the general quantity of litter or needles collected has gone up pretty much every single year for 25 years. But I think about this kind of policy as something that is really good as sort of a band-aid mm -hmm. but the but the fact that for 25 years the budget has kept going up and the need continues to increase it makes exactly. me think a little bit about food banks and how we exactly. talked a couple of weeks ago about food security saying hey food even food banks are saying we were supposed to be a stopgap not the solution yeah. and it feels mm -hmm. like more and more this ends up being the solution and then maybe distracts from really important things like mm -hmm. real poverty issues real housing issues real addiction issues facing a city like Vancouver Michelle your reaction to my possible stretch there I don't think it's a stretch at all. In fact, uh, you were reading my mind as you were talking about this. I had the the, the phrase uh, successful failure in my head, which is directly related to how food banks describe themselves. I think that's exactly what's happened here. And that, and, I sus and, and it does raise questions for sure about how that money should be spent. Uh, first of all, I find it interesting that those kinds of city services are being outsourced at all uh, yeah. to those yeah. supplementary groups. Makes you wonder why not include that money in the city's own cleaning budget. Um, but okay, so setting that aside entirely, let's say there's there's great reasons for this, and there probably were at the time. Um, it, it does raise questions about where that money ought to be going, because clearly it's not addressing the root causes in any way. In fact, we, we see those root causes simply deteriorate over time. It, it would be different if there was some kind of pathway here that said, hey, if you're part of this program, there may be opportunities to get a unionized gig with the city of Vancouver doing more mm -hmm. formalized cleaning. Like if this was a pathway program rather than simply an objective mm -hmm. program that gets run during the summer and makes people feel good, I, I would tell you like that's where this would be an excellent shining program rather than just a, 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 a successful failure or a, fail, a failed success. Uh, uh, sorry, Michelle, that was such good terminology and I've, and I've messed it up already. But Joanna, <laughs> what, what, what do you make of that aspect of this where perhaps this ends up being sort of a positive feel good distraction from real pressing issues? 
Yeah, that's one of the things we don't know. I mean, what happens to the people who are enrolled in this program? Do they actually end up getting other work, maybe at the city, elsewhere? Or does it just become something that people do as a stopgap measure to try and make ends meet? Is it just a way to perpetuate? I mean, what does success look like? Who's actually succeeding here? Uh, is this something that's continuing to keep people in poverty? I mean, the fact that they've even needed to perpetuate a program like this uh, for the last 25 years, I mean, depending on who you ask, some people would say that's a resounding failure because we have not gotten to some of the root causes of poverty, of homelessness, of addiction. And a lot of money has gone into this program and I'm not sure what the outcomes of the program are. Mm. We know what the outputs are. We know how many hours have been worked, but we don't really know what goes on to what becomes of people who are involved with this program. And Michelle made a really excellent point about outsourcing city work. Um, and I think we're not pushing back hard enough to say that maybe because, you know, because we're talking about a vulnerable people getting employment opportunities, maybe we're not being as critical as we could be in saying that Really, what you should be doing is turning this into unionized uh, jobs at the city. And why shouldn't people with uh, you know who are homeless or otherwise marginalized then have an opportunity to throw their hat in the ring and apply for that? Because there are so many other aspects to having a good job um, that we're not really getting into here. But you know, it's not just enough to have a job that pays the bills. A good job has job security. I'm not sure if this has any kind of job security. A good job has seniority built in. I'm not sure if there's any sort of reference to seniority. A good job has benefits and yeah. and, and healthcare. And I, I doubt any of that is coming in with this either. So it is a way to sort of show that people with disabilities or people from marginalized communities are getting some kind of employment experience. But whether that's sufficient to divert resources away from addressing the root causes, I'm not entirely convinced that it is. And I really have so many questions about what actually happens to people who are part of this program. Do they just continue to be a part of this program? Mm, Michelle? I think it's such a great to? point. Joey, I think that's a fantastic point, and I think it speaks to the way in which this program has been thought about, and I, I, I suspect, but certainly the way it's presented is, is the basis for this comment, that it's not being thought about in those terms. It's being thought about strictly in terms of its benefits to city cleaning efforts, and I think we see that borne out by the kinds of metrics that we have available to us, that you're right, Joey, don't answer any of those questions. They're focused entirely on how much trash was collected, where was it picked up, what kind of trash was it. Uh, that kind of detail is available, but I, I suspect that the whole, it's, it all speaks to the way this program is framed. And if those kinds of questions that we're asking here have not been the underpinning of the program, then it doesn't really surprise me that we're not collecting metrics along those lines. Mm. So it, to me, speaks to the fact that perhaps those kinds of conversations uh, haven't been going along at the central decision-making table for this program. I don't know, though, because, Joeta, you raise a really good point by saying we simply don't know a lot about the internal workings of it all. Yeah, you both uh, used expressions there that I'm going to steal, but I'm especially going to steal Joeta's output versus outcome. I think that's uh, I think mm -hmm. that's really good. I'm I'm for sure borrowing that and stealing that, Joeta. Thank you. I just want to end this on a bit of maybe a, a positive final thought here, because we certainly have, have been critical of the program, and I'm just saying from my position personally, I think that these are good programs they serve an important purpose but i do hope that people doing the work are being compensated fairly and i also hope that like there are actual tracking metrics out of this about positive outcomes for people um but i but i do want to say there's a lot of people in vancouver i've reached out to a bunch of my friends who live in the city who tell me no no this program is good for the community so broadly speaking i think good policy 
but I hope anybody listening understands the quibbles that we've raised over the course of the last 12 minutes or so. Coming up next, we dive into the world of social media where some government agencies have been deleting their social media posts. We'll explore how this may impact uh, perceptions of transparency. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's the Friday News Panel. I'm Dave, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic to discuss for you. So it turns out government agencies make typos on social media posts too. Conservative Member of Parliament Michael Barrett wanted details on what government agencies have been deleting on social and why they've been deleting it. The government tabled a house uh, response in the House of Commons. The deleted posts included typos or jokes deemed potentially risque. Occasionally, posts had to be deleted because of inappropriate replies. Michelle, why did the story fascinate you? It fascinates me for a number of reasons, because yes, those are reasons, but there were some other ones that were just kind of strange. Uh, you had some where they were taken down because information wound up being wrong. Uh, or because it simply look, was a bad look on the government. Uh, if you read some of the articles that have come out around this, uh, my colleague Stephanie Taylor, for one, did a really good job on it. There's some, there's, there's an interesting snapshot into the kinds of things that went into these removed posts. And for me, coming from a world where you can't walk back press releases, where we, if we make mistakes, have to publicly disclose exactly what was wrong and how that came to be, uh, where there are all kinds of rules around disclosure of public information in a context of a government conversation, this jumps out at me when you have all kinds of really, uh, frankly, kind of odd reasons for information to be fully retracted without explanation. That raises a whole bunch of questions for me, and I thought we could uh, have some fun batting them around. So, Juita, none of the deletions that I saw in a few of the articles really jumped out at me. Do any mm -hmm. jump out at you? No, there were a bunch of typos, a couple of jokes that didn't quite land, but nothing really jumped out at me either, to be honest with you. So, Michelle, coming back to you, which ones jumped out okay. to you? There were a couple that jumped out at me. One, uh, the, co the Coast Guard, for instance, tweeted at one point about transferring fuel to another vessel. A nice little story of helping out. That tweet eventually got deleted because the fuel was contaminated. That's just being deleted because of bad optics on the government. That strikes me as a strange one, like a really weird one. Uh, you have the RCMP advertising, uh, having, putting up a post advertising for a gun registry on the anniversary of the Ecole Polytechnique massacre. <laughs> Terrible timing, really bad optics. That's a simple case, too, where you could simply apologize for the timing and move on rather than simply scrubbing the tweet altogether. All of it, for me, comes back to transparency questions. Um, just because something wasn't necessarily a good idea, does that mean you get to expunge it from history? Wouldn't a wouldn't a post about a gun registry on a date about gun violence actually be kind of an appropriate post? Mm -hmm. You could make that argument too. I mean, uh, again, 
why 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 just take it down without explanation without yeah. context without conversation okay it's so so that that that's where i think you, the the crux of this lies as you point out michelle in terms of the way posting and deleting posts on social might impact perceptions of transparency i again I, i've used the word stretch about three times uh, so far this hour so people are probably sick of me using it i i think that like full blown transparency perceptions might be a little bit of a stretch but i do see what you're referring to there in terms terms of the way that maybe what would be political optics end up impacting government agencies. Uh, Joita, what do you make of the conversation around uh, posts on social impacting perceptions of transparency by government agencies? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing here that really sends um, red flags up for me. Uh, there were certainly a couple of things that were a bit odd, as Michelle was right to point out, but I don't smell a conspiracy or a cover-up or anything very significant. But with that said, I think um, it is right to ask questions, especially because governments adopted social media and started churning out content. And I don't know if we really had a lot of guidelines or regulations in place about uh, what that content was, uh, when it could be deleted, how it could be deleted, what was going to happen to deleted content, what kind of conversations needed to happen before something was deleted. I feel like it was one of the situations, as with a lot of us, we engaged in social media and then five years later realized that the terrain had shifted from under our feet and we're now saying should the posts that i put up in my 20s still be hanging around in perpetuity in my 30s and so um i think when we think about the government it's right to ask questions about what is getting posted on social media what is not getting posted on social media i know in other contexts we've had discussions about the government dropping the ball and not notifying people quickly enough or accurately enough during an emergency so that's the other side of the coin mm -hmm. but when it comes to deletions in particular i think at least right now based on the, what i read it doesn't sound like there's anything too much amiss here. But I think it is right to ask those questions. It is time to ask questions. Uh, and it's probably a good thing if there isn't already a policy in place uh, to have some sort of a policy in place or to have some sort of a publicly available standard in place about what gets posted on social media when and how it gets taken yeah. down. I think certainly you saw during COVID, for example, a lot of government social media accounts, a lot of a lot of government agency accounts were being utilized to share information, um, rightly and wrongly sometimes as a primary. Uh, we even saw with, for example, the the shooting in Nova Scotia where social media was being used to push push out alerts to rural communities where they didn't have internet access, right? So there, there definitely are some questions about a reliance on social media, also about the way in which social media like really thrives in terms of social media users. Is it supposed to have personality? It's supposed to uh, be a little bit on the edge? It's supposed to have a little bit of risqueness to it in the way that you communicate? But Michelle, maybe government agencies like shouldn't be getting involved in like made the fourth like uh, star wars holidays like maybe government agencies social media accounts shouldn't be where the playfulness on social media lives well or, or if they do because it can be done well like i i one of my favorite online april fool's jokes of all time was when D, D put up a profile of james howlett uh better known as wolverine from the x-men um so like it can be done cheekily and well so that governments can use social media in a more colloquial way in in, in that that can be fun. I'm with you, Joey, and that I don't in any way sense a conspiracy of any kind. Uh, to me, though, it just comes back to the nonpartisan. That this has nothing to do with the current government in power. It's just the issues of disclosure in a public channel. I'm used to seeing press releases come through that you simply can't just cancel. If you want to change something, you have to issue a new one and say, sorry, we got this wrong. Or, you know, 
they have to publicly walk it back. You can't just disappear information like that. And in a setting where the public does go directly to its government socials to get important information all the mm. time, that's mm -hmm. where I have concerns around this. It is a direct information channel. And if it can't be counted on to be transparent, that raises concerns for me. So I, I kind of land where Joita does in that I would I I think I'd like to see some kind of standards in place as to either what you post or how you correct things if you're gonna if you want to walk them back in any way. So to Michelle, to your mind, what would that look like? What controls uh, could or should or rules should be made or put in place when we're allowing government agencies to delete posts? I think that there should be some kind of correction note. If, you, I, I, if you're going to delete it, I think there needs to be an explanation as to why you're deleting it and then a reposted post with the correction made. Okay. Or if you don't want it down, if you want it taken down altogether, we can say we made a, you know, a post that doesn't fit our standards and X or Y reason, it's been removed. Like... I, I I would be an advocate for a little bit of of clarity on those issues. Joanna, what about you? You mentioned also about the possibility of policy or protocol. What do you think should be put in place? I think uh, if if a post is deleted, they need to keep a copy of it. I know, for example, in the United States, mm -hmm. with the that's account fair. of the president, yeah. uh, they keep everything as part of the public record and part of the public archive. I think that's sufficient. I want to not necessarily quibble with Michelle's uh, point, but I think if you talk, take Michelle's point about the press releases, uh, journalists understand that corrections get made. And so you might have a, a journalist who has enough discernment and, and training to figure out where there's a cover-up versus where someone's, you know, retracting a, a press release or reissuing a press release because of a typo or a misquote or something. I worry about fanning the flames when you issue correction notes every time you, you have a typo on a tweet. Uh, and every time you have um, to re, you, you you take down a tweet because I, I for a for someone who doesn't have the the same degree of discernment, but especially now when people are encouraged to be suspicious of suspicious of everything all the time, I just wonder if it may not make as much sense to. Um, I just wonder if it if it makes sense to apply the same standards to social media as we have to say conventional press releases because the audience is different the context is different and uh the 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 implications are different michelle last word i to take you. your i take your points and they're good ones i would I, I would quibble a tiny bit in that a press releases now do often go out to the general public not just the press by means of social media so i don't know how, i i suspect there might be a bit less overlap but i do i definitely take your point about public reaction and and i don't necessarily think we would need to apply this to simple typos that's one thing if we're changing factual information or just deleting because it doesn't suit your narrative that's where more where i have my concerns yeah that's fair it's well put uh that's all the time we've got today. Joita, have a great weekend. Thank you. Michelle, you enjoy your weekend uh, combing through the Emergencies Act inquiry. Have fun with that. Oh, good times for all. Thank yeah, you. Uh, nothing, nothing like a little time at the weekend editing desk uh, making Stephanie Taylor uh, go through that report over and over again. <laughs> uh, Joita, have a great weekend. Thanks so much. Bye, Michelle. Have a, great, have a nice weekend as well. You too, Dave. Take care. That is Joanna Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio, and Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. That's why I'm making fun of her, because that Emergencies Act inquiry report drops today at noon, so two hours away from that sucker. We're reading that on the train. Coming up after the break, it's the regional news update and a sports chat with Brock Richardson. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.